following sermon is brought to you by Genuine, the college ministry of Coggan Avenue Baptist Church. More information about our ministry is available at www.cogginchurch.org forward slash university. Okay. All right. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of James. We're uh, going to finish out James four and get into James five. Here towards the end of um, of his book, James kind of goes into some rapid fire on just some things. Um, and so since we're trying to, to smash a bunch of things together, we're really going to hit two different topics tonight to kind of walk through. But um, this is your first night here, man. Welcome. We're, we're kind of on the tail end of our series in the book of James. And James is a book in the New Testament, kind of towards the back of your Bible. It's written by the half-brother um, of Jesus, we believe, and the leader of the Jerusalem church um, at this point, and it's wisdom literature. So the point of James is, is to challenge the way that you think, the things that you believe, and, and, and hopefully as it challenges the things that you believe, it alters the way that you live your life. Because the main theme of James is that genuine faith in Jesus transforms you. When you come face to face with the author of life, the creator of all things, when the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that you have been separated from God, but now God has made a way through his son Jesus for you and him to be reconciled, that this kind of news um, is, is not something that you can simply hear, and if you believe, not be transformed by. So we've been looking at all the different facets. What James essentially goes through and is, is talks about all the different facets of life that, that genuine faith begins to transform inside the life of the believer. So how you face trials, how you face temptations, your view of, of Scripture and the truth of God's Word, how you begin to speak with people, um, all of these things begin to be changed by your relationship with with Jesus. So last week we talked about wisdom, and so this week he begins to talk about um, two other things. So let's jump into this tonight, uh, and, and, and we'll get to it. Tonight he's going to talk about two things, planning, all right, how you plan life and, and actions and what you're going to be doing, and then he's going to talk about uh, money, all right? So planning and money are the two things that James is going to talk about tonight. So jumping off of that, let's look at James chapter 4, verse 13. We're going to start there. Let's read through chapter 5, verse 6. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll just walk through this text tonight. So let's read this. Chapter 4, verse 13. James says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do, and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Chapter 5. Now come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. All right? 
Money's never done that to me, all right? Um, Keep going. You laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. All right, let's pray. Father, there's a lot going on in this, um, this text tonight, and I just pray that you'll give us ears to hear what is here, Lord, eyes to see these things. And the truth of what we're going to talk about tonight, of a couple things, Lord, that um, they would go down deep in our hearts. And Lord, where there's some arrogance inside of us when it comes to life and planning, Lord, where there is an overestimation of our own wisdom in things and an underestimation of yours, God, I pray tonight that you'd begin to convict and and draw us closer to you and, and that we would ultimately find our hope and security in you, Lord. And God, when it comes to money, that can be such a tricky thing, um, especially with college students because so many of us are broke. Um, but God, there, there's a lot that you have to say here about about money and how we view it and how we think about it. And uh, So Lord, I, I pray tonight that even as we speak about uh, money, that you'd really begin to tune our hearts with yours about what it's really meant for, what it's to be used for, and how ultimately, Father, we can leverage the possessions that we have, all of them, not just the money in our bank account, but how we can leverage all of our possessions for the sake of your name, the joy of our own hearts. Lord, would you do that tonight? These are the things I'm asking for. Would you help me teach this text well? And would you be honored by all that's said here? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So here's the first thing, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now here's, here's the first thing that I want you to see here. Planning isn't a bad thing, all right? The Bible, he's, he's not saying that planning is a bad thing. The Bible views planning. The Bible even views preparation as a virtue. If you go back and you read several places inside of the Proverbs, those that plan, uh, plan good things, all right? If you plan, it's not, it's not a bad thing to plan for retirement, all right? Uh, maybe you need to be thinking about that at some point right after you graduate. It's not a bad thing to plan for certain things. That's not the problem. Um, some of you, this is your philosophy of life, all right? This is, I mean, for some of you, if we were to open up your planner, this is it. I mean, things are planned out to a T. This is my wife, okay? This is Lindsay. This is, when we got married, this was, this was how she approached all of life, all right? For some of you, this is your philosophy. Planning kills magic, all right? Every time you plan something, a baby unicorn dies, all right? I mean, this is like, it's just more fun if you don't plan. This was me when I, when, uh, when I got married to my wife. Now, we had to figure out how to, how to, how to kind of mold this and this into something that was beautiful, Okay? He's not saying, James here is not saying that if you plan things, that's a bad thing. Planning inside of scripture, like I said, can be a virtue. But here's what James is saying. Bad bad planning lacks a proper view of man's life and power. Bad planning happens when you take into account 
your own power and your own wisdom and try to make life bend to your power and your wisdom. Okay, this is when planning becomes bad. And in verse 14, he's going to say planning at that stage when it's all about your knowledge, your wisdom, your power, these kinds of things. He gives in verse 14 two reasons why that's a really bad way and a really uh, uh, not wise thing to begin to boast in. Verse 14, he says this, yet you do not No, here's one thing about planning when you cut God out of the planning of your life. Very simply, James says this, you lack knowledge. You you lack knowledge about some of the most basic and fundamental things. He's actually being being good when he says you don't know what will happen, what tomorrow will bring, because if you're honest, you don't know what today's going to bring. Some of you probably even had plans uh, about what life was going to look like for you today with finals coming or papers, Ryan. Your, your plan was to get up and, and maybe go to church and then maybe grab some lunch and then maybe spend this afternoon, the first part working on a paper and the second part studying for this exam and then go to dinner with some friends and, and then come to Genuine and do this and you're going to go back and study for that math test and then you're going to do this and what happened was you slept in late, you hit lunch and you Netflixed like the rest of the afternoon, the new show that came out right? So, so like you had plans, but what happened was something else. And so the reality is what he says here is you lack knowledge about some of the most basic and fundamental, fundamental things. We constantly, listen, we constantly overestimate our understanding of things. Constantly. I did this when I started. Has anyone ever like, I'm not really like a Tim the Toolman, Taylor Handyman kind of guy. Um, but I remember when we bought this house and like we were going to remodel this house, I'd never really remodeled anything before in my life, but we get this house and my wife's walking around. Do you think we can take this wall out? I'm like, yeah, we can take that wall out. Just give me a sledgehammer. Right? So I'm like, I'm taking walls out. And then I'm thinking, what if you, if you take this wall out, you have to patch the ceiling. Well, how do you patch the ceiling? And if you take this wall, there's electrical inside this wall. I don't really know what to do with that electrical right there. How do you rerun that electrical over here? It was in that moment, remodeling a house, that I remembered. Man, this, this jumped out to me. You can make plans all you want, but when you rely on your wisdom and your wisdom alone, you can constantly overestimate your understanding of things and what really needs to be done. But the second thing he's going to say here is not just that you lack understanding in a lot of things, Uh, He goes on in verse 14, what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes and then vanishes. Don't think like fog all day. Think like puff on an e-cigarette or something, right? Or, Or just like breathing out hot air on a cold morning that it's there and it's gone. It is short. And what he means to say by this is not only do you lack the knowledge of what what life is going to throw at you or, or, and what life is going to bring at you, but you lack the power to do a lot of things that you know you should be doing. You lack knowledge and you lack power. So he says this. It's not a very good note for a lot of swagger, all right? If your first two admonitions are, man, I'm ignorant and I'm not going to be here very long. What do you need me to do? All right, that's not really what you should be boasting about or what you should be counting on in your own human strength and wisdom. So he says this, good planning then takes into account a proper view of God's awesomeness. God's awesomeness and then obeys. He says this in verse 15, instead, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills. 
if the Lord wills. So what he says here, in all of your planning, you are planning in light of and underneath the wisdom and the direction in life that you feel like the Lord is leading and prompting you to. Because unlike you that lacks all things, God is omnipotent. All right? It's just a big churchy word that means God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He's omniscient. Omniscient. This word simply means all-knowing. He is also omnipresent. He is everywhere. And everywhere he is, his power is present. Have you ever um, gotten into a project or gotten into something and then realized you bit off more than you could chew? Like you started doing something, you were like, I am in trouble. About 10 minutes into this thing, maybe you thought you'd run a mile one morning or I don't know, whatever it was. Like you get up feeling really good about life and yourself and your power and your kind of things. And then you get into whatever it is and you realize pretty soon into that, I should not have done this. This is, this is, is going to cost me a whole lot more than what I think. Listen, that has never happened with God. God has never gotten into into anything or begun to take on anything, including the redemption of the entire world and the destruction of all of his enemies and thought, wow, I shouldn't have done this or this is too heavy for me. This, This is who God is. But what it says is, man, God is sovereign over life. God is sovereign over death. God is sovereign over all activities and accomplishments. And if this is true, then any grounds for boasting in our wisdom, our wisdom and our power fades as we submit to his wisdom and we trust in his power. When you plan, when you plan, do you, are you planning in submission to God's wisdom and trusting in the strength of God's power to help you accomplish the things that are set before you? We always plan and we always do in light of his wisdom and his and his power. So this is all James is saying in this first part. Really just two things. Be humble before the sovereignty of God. Trust God's wisdom. Trust his wisdom. Rest in the fact that God governs all of life and trust him. There are going to be things at times that the Lord asks you to do that are going to be scary. There are going to be things in this life that God is going to call you to. Listen to me. The safe thing for you to do is going to be to do the thing that you know you can accomplish in your own strength. And the crazy thing to do is going to be the thing that you feel like the Lord's calling you to that you know will only be done by His strength. And so sometimes the things that the Lord's going to call you to are going to look like craziness to the world, but they'll be the wisest thing you've ever stepped into. Trust in His wisdom and be obedient to His will. Look at verse 17. He says this, So whoever knows the right to do and fails to do it for him it is sin here's here's all he's saying when you know the things that god wants you to do relentlessly pursue obedience to the revealed ethical will of god relentlessly pursue obedience to the things of him so from here he moves into chapter five and he starts talking about He starts talking about money. All right, so chapter 5. Come now, you rich. So I know at that point, everyone's probably tapping out. All right, he's talking to the rich here. 
we are college students. Um, this, this does not apply to us, but, but in fact it does. And here's the first thing he's going to say about riches. Riches reveal, riches reveal what your heart loves. How you spend your money, how you spend your money reveals a lot about your heart. And here's what was revealed about the heart of these rich people. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for miseries are coming upon you. And why is misery coming upon them, all right? What is it that's causing all of this misery and travail and suffering and all? Here's what's causing it. Because their riches have rotted, their garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Two reasons why they're in misery. One, because the thing that they hoped and trust in has lied to them. It's lied to them. They have hoped in their riches, and at the end of the day, riches have not given to them or secured for them the things that they ultimately hoped for. And, and so their use of money revealed what their heart really desired. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, which is what these rich people inside of this passage were we're doing, don't lay, them, lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now listen, like planning, like planning, James is not saying here that it is a bad thing for people to be rich. That's not a wicked, evil thing for you to have money. God's not, the Bible clearly teaches that prosperity is given by God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, um, Moses says this to the Israelites, The Lord your God is giving you power to make wealth. In Proverbs 10, verse 22, the author writes and says this, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Okay, so it's not necessarily riches. Um, when I graduated college, I went to Pittsburgh, Texas, and East Texas, um, kind of Tyler Longview area. And uh, I went to a church there, First Baptist Church, Pittsburgh, Texas. And inside of that church uh, was a man named Bo Pilgrim. I don't know if you guys know or have ever heard of Bo Pilgrim. Bo Pilgrim. Um, was the owner of Pilgrim's Pride Chicken, okay? So Pittsburgh, it smelled horrible. It smelled like chicken. But if you ask anyone in town, what's it smell like? Money, all right? Because that was like the growing, the growing thing there. It, at, at one point, I mean, th- the money that this guy had was just insane, ridiculous. His house on the edge of town um, that, that he had built was, was, was massive, but... I kind of formulated this opinion about a rich guy at a church that owned, owned a company. And then I met Bo Pilgrim. You could not have a conversation with that man with him not sharing the gospel with you. When he met you, one of the first things that he wanted to do was get to know you. And then he wanted to talk with you about Jesus. It was known 
that if you ever got on, he, he had a plane because he flew to corporate places and, and, and did things. It was known by everyone in his company that if you got on his plane to fly with him any, anywhere, at one point, Bo Pilgrim was going to corner you somewhere on that plane and begin to talk about Jesus with you and tell you all about Jesus and, and what Jesus had done for him and saved him from his sin. And, and he was there every Sunday at church. Every Sunday at church, he actually wrote a gospel track so he could share the gospel. And anywhere that Bo Pilgrim would go to speak, at some point in his talking, he would share the gospel with everyone. And then when you would leave whatever, every event he spoke at, when you would leave, he gave everyone a gospel track. And, and with 20 bucks inside of it. All right, some people grabbing a bunch of them. But it was like, you would leave, and it was like everyone would get a, 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 a gospel track where he would, that he had written to try to help explain, explain the gospel. This man leveraged his wealth for the glory of God and the good of others. So God's not against you having riches, but he is against, listen, he's against the love of money. The love of money that, that sets your hope for security. Uh, all, all these when, when money becomes the thing that you begin to trust in to insulate you from all of life's troubles and issues and, and in some ways begin to act as a functional savior, savior for you, money has deceived you. It has deceived you. Um, so listen, so, so here's the second thing. He says, love of money and possessions is deceptive and deadly. There's really two lies that, that um, money are, and, and possessions are going to tell you. Because listen, I know in America we're not, um, if I think the, the latest um, survey or whatever I saw said that if you make $20,000 a year, which more than likely most of you guys will probably make at least after you graduate, Okay. But if you make $20,000 a year, you are among the world's 1% richest, uh, richest population, okay? So I know it's not a lot, but in America, I don't think any of us are going to argue that in America we are not blessed in some way, shape, or form. If not with money, then with material possessions in some way, shape, or form. And there's two lies that money is going to try to deceive you with. Lie number one is this, that money and possessions will make you feel more secure and, um, and less anxious, that if I have money and I have possessions, then I will be secure and all of the things that I worry about, I won't worry about if I have money. Because money can insulate me, money can provide me these things that I need and that I want. But there's um, two guys uh, that, that talk about possessions and man, they... they they, they, they show the, the lunacy of this. One of them is a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. He was a, a philosopher. And look at what he says. He says, riches and abundance come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing, pretending to be security against anxieties, and they become then the object of anxiety. They secure a man against anxieties just about as well as the wolf that is put to tending the sheep. All right, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer simply, simply put it this way, earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry. But in truth, they are what cause anxiety. Here's, here's the point that they're getting at, all right? 
Stuff creates anxiety. All right? Stuff creates anxiety. Let me, let me tell you what I'm talking about. When I was in college, uh, I'll just give you an illustration here. When I was in college, I had an old, like, uh, Washburn guitar, okay? Uh, it, was, it was great for college. It was good. It was a little cheapo just guitar. It wasn't even like a good Washburn. It was like on the bottom end of, like, Washburn guitars. And I would, you know, you'd go out in the rain. I wouldn't care. I'd just be playing that guitar or whatever. Someone would want to borrow it, and they'd, they'd accidentally bump it against something. I'd be like, man, don't worry about it. It's, it, it's all good. It's old Washburn guitar. What I really wanted, what I really wanted was a Taylor guitar, okay? Now, I don't know if you know anything about, ooh, I know. Some of you know what I'm talking about, okay? Um, so Taylor guitars were like, were like the Escalades of guitars, all right? And so I saved up all throughout college, and then being the responsible college graduate that I was, took all of my college graduation money and bought a Taylor guitar, all right? So, so I'd saved up, took all of my college grad bought a Taylor guitar, and, and here was this new, beautiful, ta- do you know what that did now every time someone picked up that guitar? Don't touch that. Don't, no, 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 don't, don't, just leave that there. Don't touch that. All of a sudden, this new, shiny possession that I'd gotten, that I'd been wanting for, that, that whatever, stuff actually made me more anxious. I mean, think about you know, maybe you drive like an old beat up clunker right now and if someone like dings the car, you don't care about it, right? And then one day you get a new car and what happens? You start parking in the back of the Walmart and, and uh, Walmart parking lot because you don't want anyone to open, open the door and ding your car and you walk. for what is, what is newer, better stuff actually creating inside of you? Anxiety. So what you got to insulate yourself from anxiety has actually now become another factor of anxiety in, in your life. Listen, money and possessions, money and possessions will not bring you the security and, and alleviation of anxiety that it says it will. Many times it just creates more. A bunch of millionaires were surveyed. Um, a bunch of millionaires were surveyed about, uh, about the money that they had, asking uh, if they had enough money, essentially. And uh, all of them said no, all right, because here's, here's the, the second lie. More of what you already have will satisfy you. More of what you already have will satisfy you. Here's the second lie that money... Um, and possessions speak to you. Because listen, you were created for eternity. You were created for eternity, and only, only what is eternal will satisfy your soul. This is why temporal things, as cool and as awesome as they are, at the end of the day are never enough. Are never enough. So if you are not careful, you get on this toxic, never-ending treadmill treadmill of chasing more of what you already have. More of what you already have. Well, I know it's not, I know it's, I mean, I know I have a phone, but that next phone, that's the one that's really going to do it until the next one comes out. Or I know I have a car, but really it's the new car because that's really going to do it. Well, I know I have these clothes, but I really need news clothes because that's what's really going to do it. I know I have this apartment, but if we could just get that nicer apartment, that bigger, then that's what's really going to do it. I know, 
And at the end of the day, it becomes this treadmill of honestly just chasing more of what you already have, thinking it will satisfy when it will not. Why? Because the thing that you were created to be satisfied by is nothing that something temporally or something temporary can ever fill. Money and possessions deceive you when you feel like they will be what satisfies you. And here's what he says in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. So Paul writes and he says this, Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed, which is truly life. Because here's the last thing that I think James wants you to know is the gospel frees you from the love of money. It frees you because, listen, if your security is rooted in an all-powerful God, you don't need money to help you be secure. If your identity is rooted in your relationship with Christ and who Christ declares you to be, you don't need stuff to build up your identity. You don't need people looking at the stuff you have to declare things about you. You don't need stuff to feel worthy, important, or valid. If your identity is rooted in Jesus and what he declares about you, you're free from that. And if you're free from that and you're secure in who you are in Christ because the gospel has rooted you securely in Jesus and identity in him, then you are satisfied fully in God and you are free to be generous ultimately with his stuff. With his stuff. His stuff. So listen, an application of this in closing is simply this. Let me give you guys a few things here and we're done. How do you combat a love of money? Here's, here's some things that I think James would, would have us consider. Repent of a short-sighted me-first attitude when it comes to the possessions that you have. Um, this is kind of the eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die kind of attitude, so, so it just uses stuff on self. It has, no, it has no view of eternity with the possessions that, that one has. So we're saying here, get a view of eternity with your money. Don't, don't lay up treasures here on earth. Um, lay, up, lay up treasures for eternity. I, I heard one guy say, you, um, you can't take stuff with you, but you can send it ahead of you. Um, and what he's saying here is, listen, uh, no one ever gets buried with a hearse full of their stuff like they did in ancient Egypt. That just doesn't happen, all right? But the Bible is very clear that if you do good works with the money that you have here, that there's reward waiting for you. So, so repent of, if money for you has just been all about me first, short-sighted, right in the here and now kind of attitude. I think what James would say is repent of that. Man, begin to turn away from that. The second thing is this, grow in financial, grow in financial wisdom. Listen, for a lot of us in here, um, a lot of us, not all of us, but for a lot of us in here, one of two things probably happened for us. We either watched our parents uh, spend money or use money very unwisely. 
So we, didn't, we weren't really taught how we should approach money and, and use money. Maybe they used it unwisely, or maybe, maybe parents just never really taught us about, about how to use money. When I grew up, we didn't really talk about money in, 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 in my house. When I got to college, I didn't know much about money. I, didn't, I mean, I had to learn a lot on the fly. I made a lot of mistakes early on. But, but some of us watched our parents use money um, really unwisely, maybe even really sinfully, and just squander everything away, or... A lot of us watched our parents make money and use money in the prime of their like earning years when they're, they're at the top. So we got this view of money and what it should do that just isn't realistic for us either in college or right out of college, okay? And so one of the things that's going to be important is for you to grow in financial wisdom and understanding. I think if you have never taken like a Dave Ramsey uh, uh, Financial Peace University. Has anyone in here ever done that? Like, use that? All right. It's a beautiful thing. It's offered uh, at least once a year here at Coggin, every Wednesday night. Grow in your understanding of money. How do you get out of debt? How do you save? I think this is something that's very important. And not just then so you have more money to use on yourself, but that you have more money to leverage for the kingdom. Um, here's the third thing. Pursue contentment. Pursue contentment by cultivating gratitude. This is something you really have to fight. The average um, individual today spends, on average, 10 hours in front of media today. That's the newest, newest thing that's just come out. It's like 9.6 hours, almost 10 hours a day in front of social media. That's television, that's computer, Facebook, whatever. Inside of, in that 10 hours, you, um, you are bombarded with over 400 different advertisements telling you what you don't have, what you need, what will fix you, what will make you look better, what will make you happier, what will solve all your issues. Over 400 advertising messages a day. A day. That is a lot of advertising. That is a lot of the world and the culture declaring to you what you don't have and what you need in order to be this or that. And so one of the things that we should do, and Paul talks about this in several of his letters, but pursue contentment. Pursue contentment. If you find yourself being so focused on all the things you don't have that you never have time to be thankful for the things you do have, something is off and it will begin to disjoint things inside of your heart. Disjoint things inside of your heart. And here's the last thing that, that I would say. Um, be generous. Practice the art of being generous. It was in... Um, it was in college that I started learning really about tithing. Um... I remember being a freshman in college. I got my first job at um, the library, Walker Memorial Library, there on campus. Woo, woo. Um, so hung out there, and I started getting all this money. And, and I remember being a freshman thinking, okay, um, I want to tithe off of this. But then I started thinking about, like, all the money that I got in high school that I didn't tithe off and all, like, the birthdays. And I started trying to track. So I went to my pastor one day, and uh, it's Brother Bill down at River, River Hills Baptist Church, and I said, hey, listen, um, 
I'm going to be honest with you here. I've never been like a tither. And I have this job now. I want to tithe, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And do I need to like go back and try to remember like all the money I ever got for like every birthday growing up, every Christmas graduate, and like try to add that up and, and find out what lump sum that would be and then try to try to tithe that so I can like make up for all the stuff I didn't do and then and then start tithing like what do I what do I do there and he was like no he said man you just need to 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 confess that sin to the Lord of like because honestly mine was motivated by greed a lot of my money keeping was greed that the Lord just really had to root out of my my heart and my life and he started doing that in in college um and he was like man that that's done that's just just mark that off. Start today. What do you have? And maybe it's not money. Maybe it's going to be time. Maybe it's going to be some, something else. You, you have possessions. But, but when I was in, in, in college, man, I just started learning how to do that. So I'd get my paycheck. And the first thing I'd do when I get my paycheck is I, I'd write my tithe to the, to the church. And, and I'd do that. And then, uh, and then when I got married, Lindsay and I, um, we went through kind of a Dave Ramsey financial thing. And we started wanting to be... Uh, like, like try to give money away, I mean, do our tithe, but then we also wanted to be generous, so we, we just had a little envelope that was just called our, our giving envelope, and it started with like two bucks in it, right? Like just, here, here's, here's a little money, and each month, that money, we had to get creative when we first started doing this, because we didn't have a lot of money, but, but every month, we'd put a little money in that envelope, and then we'd hear about a family that needed something, or or something would happen, and we'd go and be like, all right, how much we got? All right, we got like 18 bucks. Like, what can we do with that? How can we bless someone with that? And we'd, we'd try to figure out ways to be generous with, with other people. And then, and then missions was something that we, listen, there's, there's tons of things. But I, I think one of the great um, things that Satan does, even inside of college students, is, is in college even get a hold of your heart with money about what it's meant to be used for, that you think will change when you graduate and start making money. But what happens is through all those years, you establish these patterns with money. That then when you get out and you start making money, these patterns are set that are really hard to change, that are really hard to change. So listen, my, my exhortation to you now is, listen, don't put your hope in money, all right? Uh, use, use money and, and bless people. Don't bless money and use people, all right? Use money to leverage for the glory of the king, not, not for security, not to alleviate anxiety. Pay your bills. I'm not saying don't pay your bills. You said to bless this. I ain't paying my, my Howard Payne bill, all right? I mean, don't, don't do that. I mean, pay your bills. That's part of being a good steward of the money that God has given you. But beware, you are living inside of a culture. We are living inside of a culture where the motto is always more. More, more, more. Better, better, more, better. And, and, and Jesus sometimes saying, man, enough. Chasing more of what you already have isn't going to satisfy you. How about leveraging this for something greater than you? Something greater than you. So, if you love Jesus and you know Jesus, and you have a relationship with him, some, a couple of other things that begin to be transformed by this relationship is how you plan. You begin to trust more in the Lord's wisdom than your own. You begin to submit your, your, your plans to him and ask his insight and his thoughts. And you begin to walk in obedience to the things that he calls you to. And it also begins to transform how you use your money. How you use your money. 
There is not a single part of our lives that when we come to faith in Jesus, he doesn't begin to get his hands on and change, shift, okay? To look more like what God's done for us in Christ. The most generous thing to ever happen is that the Father would give the Son to redeem us, to redeem us. And we're called to model that same thing, including in the way we leverage our possessions. Okay?